Well, how do you follow that? I mean, come on. Listen, if you've got a kiddo that needs to go to kids' church, you can dismiss them now. Uh, We've got uh, adults in the back waiting for them, and so if you want to send them, that's uh, third grade and under, and so kiddos can go on back to that. Um, Welcome to Emmanuel. Thanks for, man, thanks for that, kids. That was great. And choir, uh, it's, always, it's always a lot of fun to get to be able to celebrate Christmas together. And so if you're with us uh, over the last couple of weeks, we're now in the, in the Christmas series, The Promise of Christmas. We're looking at Christmas really from the, the light of, of different passages of scriptures that promise the coming Christmas, really communicate, the, I think, the story of Christmas in incredible ways. And if you know me, you know that I love this time of year. I love the season. I love the celebration of Christmas. I love all the things that come along with it. We all have our own kind of family traditions that we do, and, and I like being able to hear and experience some of those. Uh, a matter of fact, a, a few years ago, another family and the church and us uh, started uh, exchanging Christmas ornament uh, every year. And you thought, well, that's really nice, but it was not. It was, uh, it was actually quite uh, dumb and funny. We had a, we found, I don't know where we even got it. It was an old, broken, styrofoam snowflake and I don't know where it came from but we started sneaking over to the other person's house at night and mixing it in with their Christmas decorations and hanging it up and seeing how long it would take them to find it and then somehow put it back in our house. I left my house two years ago to come to work one Monday morning and on the roof, on the peak of the roof of my house over my garage is this dumb snowflake. They brought a ladder to my house in the middle of the night and climbed up on our roof and hung this thing along with the rest of our decorations. It was so goofy and so fun, and we all do stuff like that, right? I like the, I like the anticipation of Christmas. I remember as a kid, Christmas Eve was the longest night of the year. Like You'd go to sleep. And you'd wake up and it'd be like 11.45 and you're like, okay, it's almost time. And you go to sleep and you wake up and it'd be like 11.47. And you're just like, come on, like it just takes forever. And at four o'clock in the morning, you're in there bouncing off the walls, trying to get your kid, your parents up. And, and like those kind of things I love about this time of year. As a matter of fact, we were talking with the boys this week about anticipation and waiting and kind of this, this feeling of I can't wait for this to happen. And, and, and we were talking in our little Advent Bible study about how Imagine how the Jews felt. Imagine how the Israelites had, for thousands of years, had been promised this Messiah that was going to come, and they'd just been waiting for him. Uh, guys like Abraham and Moses and David, all uh, uh, understanding that there's this Messiah that's going to come, but haven't seen him yet. And then if you get all the way fast forward, all the way to, to when Jesus was actually born, there had been 400 years since the last prophet had spoke. 400 years of silence from God. He was still doing things, and there was still temple worship happening, and there was all this stuff that was still going on, but no prophetic voice, no answer, no nothing for 400 years. This is anticipation at its peak, and really it kind of fits into what we're talking about today because the Israelites were waiting for something. They didn't even know what. They were just waiting for something. And last week we talked about the very first promise of Christmas. This week we're talking about the promise of a child. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in a kind of an odd passage, but it's going to make sense as we work our way through it. Isaiah chapter 9, if you've got it, uh, it'll be on the screens. I think most of it's on the screens, but uh, we'll get to the familiar passages. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 is the ones that when we read 
kind of Christmas passages, we'll, we kind of always go to that. But it, let's back up a little bit. Let's start with chapter 9, verse 2, and read what I think is a really weird Christmas reference, but I think it, it, it communicates a really neat promise through it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And nothing makes us feel more like Christmas than blood-soaked garments and warrior's boots, right? You're going, this is the weirdest passage, I promise. If you just hang with me, because this is an incredible picture that Isaiah's painting here. And, and really, if, if you look at it just in the literary form, it is a master class in writing. What he is communicating here is so incredible. So I, I believe two truths, really, so let's break it down. Kind of parallel at the same time he's communicating. So let's kind of just break it down. The first truth here is the people in darkness are us, right? This very first verse, chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness, that's, that's us. Darkness has always been associated in Scripture with sin and sinful behavior, so we are in darkness, and we've seen a great light. That's the hope of this promise of Christmas. Those living in the shadow of death, that's the same language. You guys remember the 23rd Psalm. This is David's Psalm, right? It's a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's using the same language, this uh, loneliness and despair. A light has dawned. What is What did Jesus say about himself in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. this This is incredible word pictures that Isaiah is putting for us. Because he's this light, we rejoice, right? As men rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice in dividing the plunder, there's happiness, there's this excitement, there's this joy. We don't have to walk in darkness anymore. We don't have to, we don't have to live and you know, bound to our sin and to our shame. We have this great light that shines in these dark places of our lives and purifies us and makes us clean. And he says in verse 4, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. We'll get to the Midian's defeat in just a minute. But when I think about how Jesus frees us, because this light came, and the yoke that that burdened us and weighed us down, the sin that's heavy across our back, Isaiah says he came to shatter that. The Hebrew word for shatter means broken, dismayed, or abolished. He abolished the weight of sin on our shoulders. It's really really vivid imagery. You tie this back into Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, listen, 
This yoke that I have, is, man, it's easy. A yoke of obedience is easy. This yoke of sin and shame and guilt and regret, that's heavy. I'm going to break all that off. And, and this, honestly, is enough. He says the warrior's boots are, and these blood-stained garments, right, they're completely unnecessary because Jesus has already won the battle. We've, we've, already been, we've already gained victory in him. He's already, we don't have to fight anything. He's already secured everything for us. And when we think about it, freedom and hope and promise of victory and peace and this light and the darkness, that's enough. But there's a parallel truth that kind of goes right along with this. And it's all in this verse 4, this mention of Midian's defeat. And we don't have time to get into this. You can make a note if you're taking notes in, in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, talks about the defeat of the Midianites. And so I, let me give you the, the 10,000-foot overview in about a minute and a half. Okay? Some of you guys remember the story of uh, a Bible, Bible guy named Gideon. Right? God sends an angel of the Lord to Gideon and says, Listen, I want you and I want your people to gather up together. We're going to go defeat the Midianites. Uh, he says, um, You valiant warriors. It's really incredible uh, passage of scripture in chapter six of Judges. Gideon kind of takes a step back and says, are you, are you sure? Like, because I'm not a leader and our clan is kind of the smallest of them and we don't really, we're not really trained in that. And, and the angel of the Lord just basically says, listen, we'll do it. We'll do it together. Gideon says, okay, but like, I'm going to need some proof, right? Well, this is, Gideon, I love, because he's just like all of us, we feel like God's calling us to something, we're like, okay, God, but if that's true, then can you make that light flicker so I know what's really going on? And Gideon does the same thing, he just does it in a different way. He says, listen, I'm going to lay out a piece of fleece on the ground, and if this is what you want us to do, then let the fleece be wet, but the ground be dry. And he wakes up the next morning, and the fleece is wet, and the ground's dry. And then Gideon's like, that for us should be enough. But Gideon is just like us, goes, okay, let's try it one more time, but just flip-flop, just to make sure it wasn't kind of a coincidence. <laughs> let's let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet in the morning. And so he wakes up the next morning, and it's just like he asked. And the Bible says at the beginning of chapter 7, and judges that, that the next morning he's, he's ready. Like he gets his men together, he's ready to go. And as they begin to go to battle... God looks at Gideon and says, listen, you got too many people. Gideon's like, remember, I, remember when I said that I wasn't a good leader and we weren't very strong? <laughs> he says, you got too many. Uh, give everybody a chance to leave and just see what happens. 22,000 men leave. The Midianites, the Bible says a little bit later, um, are as thick as locusts. And and." guys who are way smarter than me estimate about 135,000 soldiers are waiting to fight. And Gideon just lost 22,000 of his own. And he's like, okay we'll, well, okay, we'll continue to go on. And God says, you still got too many. Take them down to the water and let them drink and separate them, depending on how they drink. Right? You guys remember this story. You could lap it up with your hands or if you just bend over. Uh, it whittles it down to 300 men. 300 against 135,000. And God goes, that's, that's about right. And he says, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, I need a plan. So they get this plan together. And the plan is really outrageous. It's kind of wild. Gideon gives everybody a trumpet, <laughs> which is odd, and a torch with a clay pot over it. He says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go around the camp at night. We're going to surround them. 
Uh, on the count of three, we're all going to blow our trumpets. We're going to shout for the Lord and for Gideon, and we're going to smash our pots on the ground, and our torches are going to blaze, and we're just going to see what God does. And if you keep reading through chapter 7, that's exactly what they do. One, two, three, they all shout and blow their trumpets. And uh, it says the, the Midianites wake up, scared to death, with the sound and all these people yelling and all this clay crashing that the, most people say sounded like armor kind of clanking around. And then they see all these lights. And the Bible says they were so confused that they just got up and started killing each other. And like the, the, the men didn't have to do anything, that they, they literally just wiped themselves out. And so, so God gives them this victory with, without a sword in their hand. They've got a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other, and God routs the Midianites, right? This is an incredible story in the Old Testament. And, and if you, if you kind of read through that with the lens of, okay, what's really happening here is that God's doing something for Gideon and the Israelites that they could not do for themselves. Now bring that back to Isaiah chapter 9. People in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation. You shattered the yoke that burdens them. The boot and the garment are destined for burning because they're unnecessary. God was doing something for them, in the same way, he's doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. God is giving us victory because not based on our own merit or because of our own worthiness or our own ability, but because he is able. Our enemy runs in defeat. These two truths in this Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 through 7 or whatever that is are working in such perfect harmony. Like there's this, there's this picture of an actual real life historical event of God's deliverance with a, with a promise of him going to do it again. But there's also this spiritual victory over sin and shame and darkness. And Isaiah is writing them both at the same time. And he's going, wow, this is, this is going to be really good. And the Israelites, just like this, would read this or hear this being taught, and they'd think, great, when is God coming? Right? When is he going to come and do all this? When is this light going to dawn? When is he going to show into our scene? This, this incredible thing is about to happen. When, when will he come with leadership and clout and all this social influence and this military you know, greatness? When is he going to come like that? In the very next verse, verse 6 in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And every Israelite said, a child. Look, we're expecting God to come down. We're expecting the Father or, or, or the Spirit of God or something to come and rule and reign. And like we should be able to recognize him and he's going to come and he's going to take over and he's going to put Israel back on the, the, the kind of the head of all leadership of the whole world. 
But Isaiah said it's going to be a child. This, this means God's going to come to us as one of us. This is the promise of the incarnate Son of God coming to humanity. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, we read last week, the promise of him striking the heel and, and him crushing the head, right? This means the heel's not some metaphorical statement. It's an actual heel that somehow God was going to come down himself and take on human flesh and be like us. See, this in Isaiah chapter 9 is the very first promise of the human nature of the Messiah. The Word becoming flesh, as John would put it. The Jews had been waiting on this heavenly thing, this heavenly Messiah to come and rule and reign and deliver them. And now they have a promise of a child. They don't notice what it says the child will do. The government will be on his shoulders, right? He's going to rule over the whole world that he created from the very beginning, he's going to rule over all of that. We'll get back to the names that he's going to be called in just a moment. But Isaiah continues, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness that from that time on forever. And, and that's what they were waiting for. That's what they assumed the Messiah would do, this promise of eternal reign, his government being limitless. Please tell me how you know that God is, is not just going to reign over just the earth. Like he's sovereign over all of it, right? He's, he's bigger than just us here. And when the Bible says that he's going to come and government's going to be on his shoulders, he's going to rule over everything just like he already does. Like we are a speck in the world that he's created. We are, we are the smallest in the universe of his incredible creation. You remember a few years ago, a guy by the name of Louis Giglio, he, he did uh, the passion movement in, in college, uh, college kids, him and another other, other guys. He did, a, he did a talk talking about uh, if, the, if the world were an, a golf ball. Y'all remember that? If the earth were a golf ball? Some of y'all uh, even, I think we watched it in our Wednesday night Bible study. Um, and it's just really neat. He got a lot of mathematicians, people who are smarter than uh, probably been him and then all of us, uh, together. And they did some calculations. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, then the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. It just kind of gives us some relative size things compared to what we think we are sometimes the center of the world. If the earth were a golf ball, some star in the universe would be as tall as six Empire State Buildings stacked one on top of the other. And his, his thing was go to New York City, put a golf ball down at the bottom of the Empire State Building, back up. You won't look weird. That's what he says. You won't look weird in New York. And just imagine the Empire State Building and then imagine six more, right, on top of each other. And if the earth is down here. That's how little we are compared to that star. And he says something about Canis Majoris, which is the largest known star in our universe. And if, if, uh, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, seven quadrillion earths could fit inside that one star. And we don't, I can't. He said, imagine the whole state of Texas being covered 22 inches deep with golf balls. That's how many that one star could hold. And we go, okay, maybe, maybe even though we think that the whole universe revolves around us, we have to realize that maybe we're the smallest and that he's still God of all of those. 
all of that, the expanse of the universe, he is sovereign over. His government is limitless. This is what the Jews were waiting for. Look at the names. I've got them on the screen. Wonderful Counselor. That great one of the, the very first response to Jesus' birth was wonder. He'll be wonderful counselor. If if you look, read the Luke chapter two birth, birth narrative, uh, uh, TJ just read this. When when they the shepherds had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. That Greek word amazed literally means wondered. They wondered at what they said to him. The very first thing that he talked about that his name would be would be wonderful counselor. He is everything that we need. We can go to him. There's, there's argument about whether there should be a comma between wonderful and counselor. Either way, he is wonderful counselor or he is a wonderful counselor. It doesn't matter to me. I think they both mean the same thing. He's everything that we need. It's sufficient to ask because his answer is the only one that we need. He's the mighty God. This is a singular tense. It doesn't say he's the one of the mighty gods. He is the mighty God. Not a version of, not a form of, not a lesser representation of. He is God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? This is Trinitarian language from the very beginning. He's everlasting Father, meaning he's eternal. He and the Father are one, right? Jesus tells us in John 10, 30, I and the Father am one. John 10, or John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 11, believe in me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's the everlasting Father. That means every holy attribute that we assign to God can also be assigned to Christ. That he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, that he is omnibenevolent. That he is everlasting, that he is eternal, that he is a say. Which just means he needs nothing. He's completely self-sufficient. He's eternal, he's divine. This is, again, just over and over again, reinforcing Jesus and God, equating the two. Trinitarian language, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is never just one of those. He is always all three of those. He's the Prince of Peace. The defining characteristic of God's kingdom is peace. He possesses it and he provides it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself is our peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. And we know all these things to be true about Jesus, right? We know that, that when, when Luke chapter 2 tells us about the birth of Jesus, that we know that all of those things are, are about this man that we, we know lived this life and, and died this death and was buried and came back to life again. And, and Isaiah is communicating all these things about Jesus 700 years before Jesus was born. He's the light in the darkness. He's the God with us in the shadow of death. He's the yoke shatterer, as Isaiah put it. We think about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And most of the time, we picture Jesus like the full-grown man, right? The one who bore our sin on the cross. But here's the hook for this morning. And it's what I believe Isaiah is trying to get us to understand. 
He was all of those things as the infant baby Jesus. He was all of that in a tiny, like seven, eight pound baby. Even more, we could go a step further. He was all of those things in Mary's womb. This promised child was born. This son of God was given. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this means that when Mary was holding the baby Jesus, she was holding a God that holds all things together. It's incredible. It's the promise of Christmas that God would come to us as one of us. He came completely like us on one hand, and on the other hand, he came completely unlike us, right? This is the dual nature of Christ, that he's 100% man and 100% God all of the time. People want to get that twisted up and want to say, well, sometimes, sometimes he was acting in his deity and sometimes he was acting in his humanity. Sometimes he was, you know, when he's walking on water, that's when he's acting like God. But when he's asleep in the boat, that's when he's acting like man. That's not how it works. He is all of those all of the time. How? <laughs> that's what every, every ounce of us wants to ask. How? And Isaiah answers that. End of verse 7, the very last sentence, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Interesting word, zeal. We don't use it very often. I don't know that any of us go home and go, wow, my seven-year-old was very zealous today. Nobody ever says that anymore. Here's what it means. It literally means jealousy. The jealousy of the Lord will accomplish this. Well, isn't it interesting that the very first characteristic that God reveals about himself to us is that he is a jealous God. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, God desires to be worshipped. Not only does he desire it, he knows that he's the only thing worthy of our worship. And so these promises throughout Scripture and the fulfillment of those promises through the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus are for His own glory through the honor of His Son to bring His people back into right relationship with Him. This happens through the zeal of the Lord. It happens through this eternal desire for right relationship with creation. Do you see how much He loves us? That he is, he's, he's willing to do anything to provide right relationship with us, including the promise of Christmas. Including, not just the event, but the child that was born and the son that was given. This message and this promise of Christmas begins with a child who came and who took on flesh. And who lived 
a real life who died a real death and who came back to show us that death is just the beginning of eternity. Don't miss the promise that this child holds. Don't, don't, don't be like the Jews and wait for this heavenly return to think, oh, well, I'll get it right then. He's already come. He's already shown himself to be like us and completely unlike us. I'm going to ask if you just stand up. Miss Ruth's going to pray. Uh, we're going to have just a moment of invitation because I, I want to do that before we move into the ordination. Here's your invitation this morning. Maybe, maybe you get caught up in a lot of other things with Christmas, the traditions, maybe the, the, the celebrations, maybe all the things that go on with your family or maybe even extended family, and you miss the opportunity just to really focus on the promise that, that God came to us. He didn't have to. He could have just come and just wiped everybody out, started all over again. He could have just said, I, I'm going to let them to their own device. But he came providing right relationship, and he did that through the birth of his son. Maybe this morning, maybe we just need to recognize the gift that's already been given and realize the life that, that Jesus provides for us through his real life on earth, through his real death and through his real resurrection. This promise has more to do than, than just the season of Christmas. It has a promise of eternity for those who put their faith and their hope into him. Let's pray. Uh, I'm going to have Miss Ruth just play just quietly. We'll have our heads down and our eyes closed and we'll just give a moment for God to speak to us. If you need to come, you come I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. And we thank you for this promise of a child, this promise that has been given to us. And Father, as we, as we think about this son and this gift and how he does all those things, he shatters the yoke and he gives this light in the darkness and he's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the prince of peace the everlasting Father. He is all those things as the infant Jesus. Father, help us not miss that. You didn't come to us disconnected from us. You came to us as one of us. Father, maybe we've been distracted by all the other things of Christmas and today we just need to focus in. God, let that be our heart. God, if there's things that we need to confess, if we need to make right, if we need to join a church, if we need to talk about what this Son of God came to do and why that's so important, God, don't let us miss today in the stillness of this moment. God, let us be obedient to what you're teaching us and telling us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. If you would just keep your head down and your eyes closed, just a moment of invitation. If you need to come forward and pray, if you need to come talk to me, I'd be happy to do that. But I just want to give you a moment to let God work what's going on in your heart. Be obedient to what he's doing.
Father, we love you and we thank you for today. And thank you for this promise of a child. Thank you for fulfilling that in the, in the birth of Jesus in the most unusual and unexpected way. God, help us not miss what Christmas is about. Help us not miss the message of peace and love and justice and righteousness and hope that Jesus brought. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys be seated for just a minute? We're going to move into something that we've never done here before on a Sunday morning. Um, Normally, at this point, we pray and dismiss and let you guys out. But um, as you guys know, we we have uh, a set of deacons that serve our church in a really incredible way. Um, We elect five every year. They serve for a three-year term and, uh, and then roll off. There's 15 of them actively serving. And so uh, we have a five new group as another five kind of roll off. And that kind of just continues to be the flow of what we do. Um, our, our deacons are, um, are servants of our church. And what I love about Emmanuel is that uh, we consistently ordain uh, men who are stepping into leadership positions in our church on a pretty regular basis. I, I told the guys at the ordination council uh, last week uh, that there, are, uh, there was a church I heard of that, that was celebrating ordaining deacons. It was the first deacon that they had ordained in 40 years. And, and I thought, man, that, I mean, I'm super excited for them. Like, let's do it. Let's, get it. let's get behind them. Let's encourage them. But in the same breath, I'm like, man, I, I'm so glad we got men in our church that are willing to step into leadership positions, servant leadership positions, and serve our church so well. And so uh, we met as a council last Sunday afternoon. And, uh, and the way that normally goes is uh, everybody in the room kind of looks for somebody to take uh, the head of that. So I said, listen, we've got we to elect an ordination uh, council chairman, and that's when I like, just like if I ask you guys to pray, everybody looks at their shoes and uh, puts their head down, and, and I think somebody said, the last person in's got to be it, and Hank drew the straw, and so Dr. Wharton is our uh, uh, ordination council chairman, and I asked if he would just come up here, TJ, can I use this blue mic, is that okay? Um, I'm going to ask him just to give a little two-minute rundown of, of what all we discussed and, and how we talked about uh, and talked through uh, both Michael Anderson and Gabe's, uh, Gabe West's uh, faith and in, in the expression of their faith. Here you go, Hank. Thank you. One minute was going to be that story, so you stole one minute of my. <laughs> but we had a great meeting uh, last Sunday afternoon at Deacon Ordination Council, and uh, we uh, got a chance to talk with uh, Gabe and, and uh, Michael to hear their, their, the story of their salvation and their work with the Lord and many things they did. And we were impressed. I think everyone in the uh, council participated. We had, uh, we had a lot of good discussion, a lot of fun, I think. And uh, we, uh, as a council, were uh, uh, completely unanimously uh, in favor of them becoming deacons at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And they, of course, had a chance to back out, and they did not. So <laughs> they have uh, agreed also to undergo the process of deacon ordination. And, and we need to be aware, however, that this is not the work of the deacon 
ordination council uh, to bring these two men to, to this level of service in our church. This is the Lord doing this. He is the one who is behind this. And he moves through our church to elect these men. And so we need to be thankful uh, for his guidance and his leadership uh, in this church and specifically with these two men. And uh, I'm so thankful to be able to come up here and just say a few words uh, to, uh, to their support and just to voice the uh, support of the Deacon Ordination Council and to uh, undergird what the church has already spoken. So with that, that's great. Thanks, Hank. Appreciate you, sir. Right. So um, I, I like for you guys to know a little bit about what happens in those, in those councils, and we talk through them through their testimony and through their call and, and service in our church, how they're already serving our church in a number of different areas. And so um, I just want to speak real quickly, and I, I know this feels like I'm about to preach another sermon, and maybe I will, but I won't. Um, I, I want to kind of always draw us back to what it means to be a servant leader in our church. And some of you remember this story in Matthew chapter 20, uh, where Jesus and his disciples have been going around this. I mean, this is in, into the thick of his ministry. And, and James and John, the two disciples uh, who were brothers, uh, their mom kind of interjects herself into the narrative in a really weird and uncomfortable way. She comes to Jesus and asks Jesus, hey, listen, when you come in your kingdom, she's a believer, when you do come in your kingdom, can you give my sons places of honor? Will you let one sit on your right and one on your left? And, and all the other disciples did not like that she asked him that. Uh, it's kind of like sending your mom to do your little dirty work for you. And that's kind of what happened in this moment. James and John, who were they're the sons of Zebedee, the, Bible, the, the other name of that is Sons of Thunder. They're kind of loud. They're kind of out front. They're kind of whatever. But, but their mom did this in kind of a weird and uncomfortable way. And Jesus calls them together in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, and says this. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? Their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, be, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I think about deacon leadership in our church, this is what I always go back to. In its simplest form, deacon is a servant. I mean, we got qualifications for them in, in Titus and in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in too much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of deep truths of the faith. I have a clear conscience, manage their household, be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, hospitable, loves what's good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And we all read that list and go, how can anybody do that? And the honest answer is we can't. <laughs> None of us can without God working in and through us. And so these two men, James and John, come to, come to Jesus with their mom to negotiate their, their elevation of their status in heaven. And Jesus responds with a very important reminder of God's equation of honor. If you want to be great, you've got to become a servant. See, some of the greatest men that I know are the most humble men I've ever met in my life. They, 
they rarely want to be known for anything. They, they, they don't like necessarily taking compliments. They don't ever want to be the center of attention. It's hard for them uh, to, to, to kind of be in the limelight. They're, they're honest. They're humble. They're hardworking men who just love Jesus and love other people. Those are the kind of men that we want to serve our church. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you've got to be a slave because a slave has a master, Right? And Jesus is ours. We come underneath his leadership. We can have to devote our life to him. It means that, that our lives reflect him in every area of obedience and evangelism and discipleship and stewardship and in love. Like we want to be underneath him, learning and living like him. And what I think is so great about this whole passage is that Jesus didn't ask us to do something that he himself wasn't willing to do. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. Over and over in scripture you see Jesus humbling himself. Taking the form of a servant. Washing feet. Eating with sinners. Doing the lowest of the low things. Because that's what he came to do. So my challenge to us this morning. And really to Michael and to Gabe as well. Is, is to never let our equation of honor outweigh God's equation of honor. We want to elevate ourselves and, and God's saying, no, it's just the opposite. Make yourself less so that you can become more. That's the role and the heart of a deacon. And so I, I'm so thankful and so proud of our leadership and our deacon leadership here, how they want to serve our church and how they faithfully do that. We've got about 26 men who are, are ordained in our church as it sits right now. And as of this morning, we have two more. And so um, here's how we're going to end this and this, end this portion of our service and really our morning this morning. I'm going to ask uh, TJ, uh, I'm looking for somebody else. Um, will you come up here, TJ? And, uh, and Stuart, can you help me too? Can we grab just two chairs and just bring them right down here? And I'm going to have Michael and Gabe sit in those chairs. And then I'm going to invite uh, every other ordained man, if you're here, uh, whether you're an ordained deacon of our church or if you're here as a guest and you're ordained, you know, you're part of uh, maybe family or extended family, uh, will you guys come and let's just gather around these men as ordained men and let's pray for them as they, uh, they kind of take this step out in their life as, a, as an act of, of obedience to what God's called them to. So Michael and Gabe, you guys come down and have a seat. And then, uh, and then uh, if Miss Ruth can just, uh, uh, just play. No, we don't have to do that. Yeah, Miss Ruth, will you just play as our men kind of gather around them? Guys, if you're ordained, let's, let's gather around these men. Let's pray for them. And then uh, and let's, let's, uh, let's just have a moment of, of dedication in their heart and life. Last, Dennis Young, the chairman of our deacons. Dennis, will you pray for these men? Amen. Thank you, guys. 
Hey, listen, just a couple of points of, um, of announcement before you guys get out of here. Just know that there's a lot of things happening today. The choir cantata performance is this afternoon at 3 o'clock. This has been officially labeled the... Uh, guys, y'all don't have to sit there while I do announcements. Sorry, I should have let them go. <laughs> This afternoon's performance is, is quote-unquote the school performance because the school choir is joining our uh, community choir to be a part of this. If, if you want to come this afternoon, you can obviously come. We want you to be a part of that. It'll be at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Make sure you're here. If we can have some of our folks be here a little early just to kind of be greeters at the door, just to let people know uh, that we're glad they're here, we'd really appreciate that. We're going to do it at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and we're also doing it at 6.30 tomorrow night, Monday night. And so if you can't make this afternoon or you go, listen, we're going to try to free up enough space for the community to be here. I'll be here tomorrow night. Then either way, you can, you can hit it or you can come to both. We want you to be a part of it. It's really a big deal. We've got um, musicians, got a live orchestra. We've got a live choir. Uh, it's, it's really, it's really going to be fantastic. I'm really proud of our, our church for, our, for putting this together, TJ and his vision to be able to make it come together. So it's really, really uh, good. Um, no kids and adult ministries this Wednesday night. All that's done until after the first of the year. The students are having a scavenger hunt this uh, Wednesday night, which is a throwback to way back, way back when. So if you're an adult and you go, listen, I don't care to put four kids in my car and drive them around town and be silly with them, Shelton, I'm sure, would appreciate some help. So you contact him, let him know uh, that you're happy to help him out and, and do that this Wednesday night. And then next Sunday is our Lottie Moon in gathering. Uh, we'll we'll uh, take a special offering next Sunday. All that money goes to support uh, our uh, international mission, and we get to be a part of that. So thank you guys for being here. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for letting us take a moment and ordain these men. Uh, let's, uh, let's all stand. I'll pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our church. God, thanks for the promises that you've given us. Uh, thanks for Christmas and what it really means. And thanks for a church that is willing to focus in and really kind of settle into who you are and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. God, this is what happened with these men this morning. These, these men are not special. They are set apart to serve. And so, Father, today, help us realize that we all have a calling in our life and that we all are called to be servants, whether we're deacons or not. God, we want to make less of ourselves so we can make more of you. Help us do that through this Christmas season. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed.